Good morning, everyone. How are you guys doing? Great. Uh, welcome to Savior Community Church. Uh, my name is Jazz. I'm one of the overseers here. Um, I want to welcome you to our church. Um, I have the, the really cool opportunity to launch us into a new series. Uh, this will be an overseer series. So you'll see the five of us uh, come up here and share with you. Uh, it is titled Convictions. If we can get the slide up there, yeah. And so it'll be uh, just overseers coming up and sharing a little bit of our hearts with you and, and at the same time be able to share our story. And I think our, each of our, our journeys and our, and our faith is different, but there is, and there are certain truths I think found in the Bible that has really made a, an impact and a difference and a lasting impression on us, a truth that has made the difference. And that's what we're here to share with you. And I, I think it's really, really cool. It's exciting for me because I get to share my favorite psalm with you. Uh, if you would turn uh, in your Bibles to Psalm 16, I will pray for us and then we'll, we'll jump right in, okay? Father, thank you for gathering us. Uh, you are God over all things and you're God over each and every one of us. And so thank you for inviting us and receiving our worship. Thank you that we can gather together and sing songs and know that you are pleased in hearing it. Would each of our hearts tune in today? God, help me to, to deliver the word with clarity, and though it is testimony, and much of what you've done in my life, God, would the truth that has made an impact for thousands of years, uh, for all believers, for all time, would that be what shines through today by the power of your spirit? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So before we even jump in, I just want to give you a little bit of context, okay? This is a sermon series, uh, but the book that we're studying today is a psalm. And something that's unique about the psalms is uh, it, it's so raw and honest. It, it really delves into the human heart. It gets you behind the author and gets you to, to think, think with them on the things that they're wrestling through, the things that they're feeling through. They just lay it out there. And some of the times when you read the Psalms, it's just, it seems like they're in outright rebellion against God, like they doubt his presence. And then at other times, they're just like praising God to a level where you're just like, is it even possible for the rest of us to get to that level of joy and exuberance? Is it even possible? And so in that way, it, it takes the writer, it tears open their hearts, gets us behind the pages so we can think and feel with them on the things about God that, that's on their minds and hearts. So in that way, it can serve to guide our thinking and our feeling in a deeply relatable way. And so I think many people, when they start reading, they jump right to the Psalms, right? Or if you haven't read the Bible in a long time and you crack open the bindings that, are, that have been closed and dusty, you go right to the Psalms and just jump right in. And it's easy. It receives you with warmth and, and song because that's what they are. It's completely unlike Deuteronomy and, and Leviticus and the things that really trip us up in our yearly reading uh, calendars. So today I hope that this will uh, help you to engage and kind of leave some of the reservations aside and really think through what David is putting before us, what God is putting before us. Hopefully it can teach us, again, how to think and how to pray through these things. Let's read the first two verses of Psalm 16, okay? Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. 
I have no good apart from you. Let's pause there. So right away here, we see a prayer. We see a prayer that likely you and I have both made before. In some sense, it's universal. He says, preserve me, O God. It says, help me, save me. And I say it's universal because even children make this prayer at times. Even unbelievers make this prayer. We see it in movies all the time, like an elevator is about to crash, and they're sitting there, and they're like, oh, I don't know if you're real, God, but man, I, I would really like it if you come save me right now. And it's, it's like a funny trope. But even criminals on death row, right before they hit, they hit the room where they're going to be executed, they might say, God, I, I don't know. I've never believed you. I've never done anything to please you. But God, if you're really out there, save me. Preserve me, oh God. That is a prayer that is universal. And so we see that. But at the same time, as we see this giant universal prayer, maybe you can remember the time where you first made this prayer. For me, it was back in, in 97. My family moved from Korea to the United States. My parents left their life behind in Korea, and they've left their college degrees behind and started working minimum wage jobs in, in Las Vegas. And yes, in 97, they had homes in Vegas, they had schools. It wasn't just the strip. We didn't gamble for a living. Like, it was an actual place. It's a home, right? But what was unique to our experience was that, first, there weren't a lot of Asian families out there in Las Vegas. So I was, I was the only Asian family in our whole apartment complex. And I didn't speak any English. I might have I known hi and bye, maybe. Uh, I'm not sure. I was seven years old. But I remember in my room... While both my parents were away at work, working double shifts, I remember how cold and lonely that room was as a seven-year-old. I had one lamp, just had carpet, no bed came yet. And I remember sitting there, popping in an old cassette tape of like some sermons from, from some Korean pastor in Korea. And I listened to that guy like mumble on a sermon that I probably didn't even understand, but it gave me comfort. And I prayed, you know, like, God, please preserve me. I'm so scared. And I'm so lonely. So this, this psalm is trying to draw us in. It's trying to relate to us at a very elemental level, saying, God, when you realize your need, you cry out to him and say, help me. Keep me safe, God. So it's tugging at those, at those moments, at our hearts there. And we see the writer, King David, in this psalm, is right there with us making this prayer. But his reasoning is distinct. He's not just saying, help me. He's saying, preserve me, God, for in you I take refuge. So the for is like a because. So God, please help me, save me. Because I take refuge in you, I find safety in you. And so he says, I take refuge in you, but what does that mean? None of us really talk like that, right? When's the last time you used the word refuge ever? Right? But he's saying, I take refuge in you and you'll keep me safe. So what does that mean for us? How do we take refuge? Is it just a metaphor? Like where we just close our eyes and we're just like, all right, God, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take refuge in you. Because, you know, God is spirit. So I'm just in my mind, in my heart, like I'm in, I'm in dire straits. I'm in danger. So God, I'm just going to take refuge. And then you're just hoping that God will deliver you. Like, is it, is it something... Like that? Is it blind faith? God's powerful, so just believe in him? I mean, the obvious answer is no. That's not what this passage is pointing us to. 
Nowhere in the Bible does God refuse to give you a reason to believe in him. All over the scriptures, all over the Bible, he reveals himself time and time again. This is who I am. This is what I'm about. These are the people and the lives that I've affected and, and moved in and through. So come, trust me because I'm like this. He reveals himself. And that's what David says in verse 1. And so I'm going to take refuge in, in that God. And so, please, save me, preserve me. And so I wonder the question, how does God keep us safe then? How does he preserve us? Because this surely does not mean that every danger or the negative outcome in our lives will go away. It doesn't mean every family conflict will be resolved. It doesn't mean that every disease will be healed. It doesn't mean that every person that you know that you desperately desire to be saved will be saved. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean that every bad thing that we can ever imagine won't happen as long as we trust God. That's not what this means. Because, well first, is it true in any of your experience that when you ask God, did every time, did he deliver the way that you wanted him to? At your beck and call, you just say, God, yeah, I want this to turn out the way that I want it to. I feel like I'm in danger. I'm in danger of this negative outcome. So please, God, help me, preserve me, save me. Did he? 100% of the time? I'd imagine that your answer is no to that. Because if this is true, that all bad things won't happen, God will always protect us, then any time that we're in trouble and we get wrecked, then what? It's either because what God isn't real, or if he is real, but he just doesn't care enough about your circumstance. It's not a big enough problem for him to come and deal with. Maybe you deserve it. Maybe your faith isn't strong enough. Maybe you've done something wrong and he's punishing you. Those are the things that we end up thinking of. But there is this huge reality behind this, this, this plea that David makes to save him that we, are, we often forget. Look, we all collectively know, the rest of the world at least has in the back of their minds, they agree that God, if he exists, he is all-powerful. He can save. That's why we ask. He can, in any situation, come and decide to make things right. He can. If he wanted to, at your whim, beck and call, he could make a difference. But he's not a genie. He's not your servant. But instead, he gave us his word. He gave us the Bible. He revealed himself through it. He gave us his counsel, the way he designed the universe to be, the way he designed each and every one of you to be, designed communities to be. That's why we study the word. Isn't it possible that the way that he will save us and preserve us is in the very pages that we study, in what he calls us to, that's what he's going to use to preserve us? Look in verse, uh, look in Psalm, Psalm one. He says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of scoffers, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, sorry, in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord or the word of God. And on his law, he meditates day and night. The contrast here is the one who walks, the one who stands, the one who sits, does wicked things, completely opposite of God's counsel, will not prosper. But blessed is the man who follows Preserved is the man, saved is the man who delights in the counsel, delights in the law of the Lord. 
He says that. In 2 Corinthians 4, it says we are afflicted in every way. There's these negative outcomes. There, there are these troubles that we go through, but we're not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. These bad things will happen, but somehow in his salvation, in his help, in his preservation, we're not destroyed. We're not forsaken. We're not driven to despair. We're not crushed. So there is a mystery here that even in the midst of troubles, when we call out for him to help and take refuge in his counsel and who he is, he strengthens us. Look in Colossians. We just went through this series. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. He gives us the ability to endure the hardships with joy. That is at least in part how he delivers us, how he chooses to give us strength. The Bible goes on. This is his counsel, right, that he gives us. In Romans 5, he says even suffering does good in us. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. James says it's how we become perfect. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So the Bible says, look, you're going to go through trouble. You're going to go through suffering. You're going to go through trials. So in those moments when the people of God come and say, God, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. A part of the taking refuge is taking refuge in what he said, what he's counseled us saying that these trials are going to produce in us something perfect, something the world out there cannot have because they don't have God himself. But endurance and character and hope will be produced in us. God's word teaches us, counsels us. He preserves us through that counsel. It's also how we can be, it's also the way we can be in him. Look, David even says in, our, in the psalm today that we're studying, psalms, uh, Actually, look, look down at your pages, uh, verse 7 of Psalm 16. He even says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night, my heart also instructs me. But many of us, so David says the counsel is what, what helps him. But many of us study the word. We're here every Sunday. You and I both come to church, learn what God says, the way that he desires us to live, Psalm 1 said that if we walk in the ways, the law of the Lord, if we obey, obey that and follow that, we will be safe, we'll be preserved because God made everything and he knows that's the way you should live. And he protects us with his words, his promises. But still, we know what the word says, what will actually keep us protected and safe, but we just kind of do what we want. Because knowing what we should do doesn't keep us from committing sins or keep us from doing what we want. I mean, don't raise your hand, but you know in the carpool lane, right, there's like those two lines, and you know you're not supposed to cross it. You see the giant fine, right? You know you're not supposed to cross it. 
But then if there's an exit that you're passing up, like a freeway connection, and you're like, you're going to pass it, and there's no one in the like, next three lanes, no cops nearby, I mean, how many of you just like, just exit? Maybe even without signaling, just exit and go straight onto the freeway. Like, you know you're not supposed to, but you do it. I mean, you know you're supposed to do a full stop at a stop sign, but there's this thing in California called the California Roll. Have you heard of this? It's like you come to a stop in California, roll, and you just keep going. Like, you don't even really stop at the stop sign. And I'm sure it's not just limited to California. Like, knowing doesn't keep you from doing those things, doing what you want. I mean, all that light stuff aside, the, the Bible says love your enemies. But when people really get at you and make you angry and people ride on your last nerve, they don't take care of you, they're unkind, they're unkind to people that you love, don't you inside just hate them and just rather just feel these evil things toward them and just maybe stuff it inside, maybe talk behind their back? You know God says love your enemies and yet we just do what we want. We do what's easier. Instead, we hate, we tear down, we withhold love from them. So the knowing doesn't stop us. Like we recognize God is powerful. So then we ask him, save us. Even though we don't obey you, save us. Protect us. So we ask him to help. So we recognize that he is God Almighty and yet he is not our master. Do you see the difference? That we recognize he's the creator of all things and yet he's not our Lord. He's not our master. There are so many areas where he is not master over my life, master over each and every one of our lives. And David says no to this. This is unacceptable to him. See where he takes it next in, in verse 2. He says, he says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. And L-O-R-D in all caps is Yahweh. It is God's proper name. It is his personal name. It completely sets him apart from all the other false gods. If you say God, you might think of the gods of different religions and whatnot, but Yahweh is I am, I am. It is, he's always existed, the uncreated one. It's used like 6,500 times in the Bible. And that's what, that's what that first L-O-R-D is. Or else it just sounds kind of funny. Like David's like, I say to the Lord, he is my Lord. And it's like, oh, he must be just repeating it for like decorative purposes. But no, he's saying, I say to Yahweh, he is my Lord. And the second one is Adonai. It's used 650 times-ish, right? And this just means master, my king, or shortcut, he's like my boss. Like he is the one I submit to. He's saying, Yahweh, you are the one who is my Lord, my master. That's what he is saying. He's saying, you're not just creator God to me. You are my master and I obey you with every fiber of my being. David says, Yahweh is my Lord. And I make this difference because, or this distinction, because I, I accepted Jesus as my Lord, my master, when I was 22 years old. But I was born and raised in the church. Like, I had that response of, you know, when you meet Christians at, like, different Christian uh, events or someone just happens to, to discover that you're Christian and they ask you, like, how did you come to faith? And you're just like, oh, yeah, you know, my parents were believers, you know, before I was born. And so I was raised in that Christian home. And so just, just all I know, you know, just accepting Christ was just second nature to me. And, you know, it's, I, I don't really remember when I committed to Jesus, but, you know, I go to church, I serve. And, 
that's kind of my life. And maybe you find that to be your story. But for me, I went to church. I studied the Bible. God was my creator, but he was never my Lord. For 22 years, he was never my Lord. Like, when I come to these uh, Sunday services and I hear sermons and I go to Bible studies and, and, and group gatherings, I didn't see the Bible revealing Yahweh God. I didn't see the Bible trying to get me to see this person, this amazing God, so that I may take refuge in him and be safe. I didn't see that. It's like, uh, it's like studying like school textbooks. Like It's a wonder why in, in high school, at least for, in my experience, you learn chemistry and you read those books and those things are so thick. Like they give you so many pictures of these elements and how they interact or whatever and it just like completely goes over your head. But then my, my chemistry teacher in my high school, he used to set a couple of weeks during the year where he just goes outside of his classroom and they just blow stuff up. Like they just use all these chemicals and like blow stuff up in lavender color, like turquoise color. Like some of you chemists out there, you probably know what he's lighting on fire. But for me, I don't know. But in that moment, it, it went from a textbook of just things, numbers and letters and stuff to stuff like that wowed you. And you're just like, wow, what is in that? And you're just like, oh, the stuff that we learned in last chapter, that's what we're blowing up today. You would like blow up gummy bears and stuff. Like it just made no sense to me. But there was something in a textbook that became alive because of that experience. And I'm saying that for 22 years, I, I studied the Bible. I knew the passages. I read it. I marked off that I read every day so that I can get that prize at the end of the month or whatever. But I never understood that it was revealing Yahweh, God, the living God, the only one who is, who is uncreated, who made me, who made you. I didn't know that. He only had a part of me. Like he had me on Sundays. Like I was all in on Sundays. I'm down to wear collared shirts, tuck it in. I'm, I'm down. Just, I'm here on Sundays early. And, but on Sundays, it was, we would just come, learn the scriptures. And for me, the thing that drew me to church was basketball after Sunday service. Man, basketball. You know? And then my friends, right? Just gathering around, hanging out with them, going to retreats, staying up super late in the night, having way too much ramen, and making sure my parents don't know about it. Like, that's, that's what church was for me. And, and I wish we had time to go into verse 3 and 4 of, of Psalm 16 because he talks about how the people of God, the people who love God are the ones that bring him delight. That's the reason why he loves them. And I wish we had time to get into that, but no time today. But the idea is that people, not just people because they were cool and, and nice to hang out with or they were good at basketball or they liked the fact that I was okay at basketball or whatever, like, that's not what was supposed to bring me joy. It was that these people know Yahweh and they reveal him to me in the way that they live. That's what's bringing me delight. That's what it should be. But I got really good at separating my Sunday life and my everyday life. So God had me on Sundays. Like it was as if he was my master on Sundays. But the rest of the week, he was not even on my mind. It was just God, me, obeying him and doing the things that I was supposed to. And then there was everything else. His counsel, what he taught me in the word, meant nothing because my master was my pleasure, what I want, what felt good to me, what made me have fun. I was my master. And so for me, I think it was like eight, I was 18 years old and I got the first opportunity uh, while attending Cal State Fullerton to move out. And I remember how it happened too, because I, I visited 
uh, I was in a class, I think drama, drama 110. And I, I don't know why I was in drama, but I was in drama. And I found some guy, this huge, this huge black dude with dreads. And he was like, oh, you, you sang in, in New York, Carnegie Hall? I was like, dude, I sang in New York, Carnegie Hall. So he and I like, you know, bonded over that. And he invited me to his friend's place. And the friend happened to be two guys living in a one-bedroom apartment. And they, they said something about like, oh, yeah, like, we're looking for an extra roommate. And I was like, can I be that roommate? So, so I just jumped into that house and just paid a third of the rent, which I believe it was illegal at the time. But it, it doesn't matter. I, that's how I moved out. I just wanted to get out of my house. And then they had neighbors who, like, drank and had parties and stuff. And so for the first time, I was able to freely, just at 18 years old, just, like, go play beer pong and just, like, hang out with people late into the night and, and like, use up all of my youth because I would go to sleep at 3 in the morning and wake up at 6, like, just as if I wasn't going to be tired later on. I was not thinking of my later 20s. I regret that very much. But my point is, I went and I did that. There were neighbors of mine who were like stoners, and they would invite us. And they, were, and they found out that my birthday was 420, right? And they're like, wait, it's your birthday today? I was like, yeah. They're like, have you ever smoked marijuana? I was like, no. Well, you gotta. You're born on this day. <laughs> Eventually, they wore me down. And it's true, they say it's the gateway drug, but, you know, to be honest, I was already at the gate making sure, like, who was coming by. Like, I was interested already. But then I ended up going full down that route. So Sundays, I was still God's, right? You know, just, I was still God's. And then on, every other day, I was partying, I was smoking weed, I was doing all this stuff. And that led me down a life further and further apart from God. That divide that I drew in my life got larger and larger. And in my mind, I was like, man, apart from God, the Sunday life, apart from God, I can have all this good. Why would I keep doing that if I don't have to live there? And like, I could just text my mom and say like, yeah, I did go to church nearby. If I could just tell her that easily and continue to live my life the way I want to, why wouldn't I? Because apart from God, apart from him, I can have all this good. I can spend my money the way that I want. They gave an 18-year-old a $2,000 credit card. Again, really, really bad decisions. But I went and bought a bunch of snowboarding gear, bought a, a year subscription to like Mountain High and went four times. They just make no sense. Just spending money like I didn't care. Made great decisions during that time. But didn't care about debt. But just bought a bunch of stuff. And after a certain point, that wasn't enough of me f like satisfying my desire for stuff. So then I ended up stealing stuff to make sure I, I have the latest things. Yeah, I can have all this good if I'm not there with God. I don't have to go to school. I could skip as long as I like coast in with that D minus and make sure I don't get dropped and get a letter sent home because, you know, that standard is pretty low, right? D minus. All the Asians in here just went like gasp. But I could just cheat on tests. I can actually get the, what is it, the, the you know, the answer sheet and then sell it or buy it. It doesn't matter. I mean, if I'm, if I'm not with God, if I'm with God, then I feel guilty and I, I can't do that. But with, apart from him, I can have all that. I can lie. I can do whatever I want. I can drink. I can get high. I can have sex with whomever I want. I can do whatever I want apart from God. I can have all of this good apart from God. When Yahweh is not my Lord, I can have that when I'm apart from him. So I dove headfirst into that. 
And eventually, that divide, that chasm that I had built between the Sunday me and the every other day me tore my life apart. I didn't know who I was anymore. With different people, I had to behave differently, have different, you know, way I talk and different, like, vibes and different things we talk about. It just became so hard to just live and, like, socially interact with people. I, d- I didn't know who I was. Nobody else knew who I was. It just, I was with people, but I always felt alone. Maybe you resonate with that. But this divide was, was killing me. And I, ha- and I had moved out, right, to make more room for the everyday me. Not the Sunday me, but the everyday me. And I made some, some worse life decisions. And eventually upset my parents enough with my rude behavior. I was inviting uh, the people that I was dating over to my parents' house. They didn't know or they found out. And just I, just, I was rude. I didn't care. I just didn't obey anything at a certain point. I wasn't even trying to cover it up anymore. I was just doing drugs at my house. Like it, was just, it just became this nonsense. Who was I? That divide eventually couldn't last between the Sunday me and the everyday me, and it all came crashing down. I stopped talking to my family, didn't see my brother. And I decided I'm going to just move out into this home. It was this rickety home in Diamond Bar, the really crappy part of Diamond Bar, if you guys know where Diamond Bar is. Um, I think it was like built in the 70s, and they've done nothing to help it since the 70s. And it was just this terrible house, four unbelievers. Uh, One one was was a guy who was just interested in working out. That's all he did. And he would bring different girls home every day. Uh, another girl was uh, one of my coworkers, but all she did was smoke pot. Uh, the other, another one was this this guy who was Iranian, but looked, but looked a Caucasian. But then he had he owned a bunch of AK-47s and chewed tobacco and and uh, played modern warfare all day every day. And then the last one was a girl they picked up from uh, Craigslist, but she was a lesbian and she would invite her girlfriend over all the time. This is the kind of house I lived in. True story. This is the place where I was not talking to my family and just signed a year lease so I can go have more of being apart from God, but all this good that I can have apart from him. Eight days after I signed my lease, I got into this giant car accident. Like, I wish I brought some pictures. Like, this Lexus SUV was, like, on top of my car. My spine was all out of joint. Like, I went to physical therapy for a while. I ended up getting laid off from my work because I hadn't passed my probation period and I couldn't lift anything anymore, so they fired me. Um, They covered it up and they pushed me out. And then during, while all this was happening, I I started to develop a drug addiction. And so that was kind of on the the down low. I was smoking cigarettes all the time. And then my, my girlfriend at that time uh, she, she was already gone. She was already cheating on me. But I found out about that. She left me. I had no money. I was addicted. No job. I had no good. Just completely wrecked, thrashed. And remember Psalm 1? We read like just a section of it, right? But, but let's look at kind of the whole of it again. And it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, Right? But I was definitely not blessed. I listened to all the counsel of the wicked. Stands in the way of sinners and scoffers. I hung out with him all the time. But his delight is on the law of the Lord. What law of the Lord? All the stuff I studied for 20 years, out the window. Didn't care about it. Didn't meditate on the law. 
day and night. But he is like a tree. This is righteous man. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all he does prospers. Was that a picture of my life that I painted for you? And I, and I tried to give some of the essentials, but it was even worse living it and seeing it. And if all of my friends who saw me like that, they were just like confused. Who is this person? It was like I was in a desert. I was withering away. I felt worthless. I didn't know who I was. I had no good apart from God. When I had walked away from him, I had nothing. What good did all that studying the word do? Nothing. God wasn't even on my mind. Like, it makes sense if I'm painting this picture for you that in that moment, you know what? That's when Psalm 16 made sense to me. And I come up here and I said, I said, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. And let's say that's where I came to faith. Then it would make sense, right? But I wasn't even thinking about God. Did not even pray for him to help because he was so far from me. My Sunday self and every other day self had been split and I had walked away. I was done with him. I was gone. And to be frank, I should probably be more embarrassed in sharing this story of who, what my life was. And I've gotten in trouble for sharing it so openly in churches that are more conservative. It may even sound like I'm celebrating these things, like I've lived my life to the fullest and I'm trying to create some sort of sensational testimony. But that's simply not true. I eventually was dragged into church. I'm 215 pounds now, but I was 175 then. Just addicted to to meth and just barely hanging on for life. And I came into church and Yahweh, for the first time, revealed himself. In the story, which later on, this doesn't really matter, but I, I found out that it may not even be a part of Scripture, but just a real story of Jesus. But aside from that, in John 8, there's this woman who gets caught red-handed in her sin, in her affair against her husband. And in the Mosaic Law, in the counsel of God that's supposed to preserve us, she deserved death, so she gets dragged in front of Jesus. And they say, stone her, Jesus. She sinned against her husband. She sinned against God. What do you say to her? And Jesus knowing that he was going to go to the cross and die for her, said, I forgive you. Actually gave her a chance to call him Lord. And she did. And then he said, go sin no more. Because I'm going to pay for you. He said that to her. And, And that day, for me, I was that woman. I was that woman who was naked, who had nothing, who just got dragged in front of everybody, embarrassed my whole life out there. Just nothing available to me, nothing for me to give, nothing to provide anybody. And I was given a chance. He asked me if I would follow him. He asked me if I was, if he was worthy for me to follow. And really my response to Yahweh, my response to Jesus that day was, why me? What do I have to give you? I'm a shell of who I was. I have nothing. I have no good in me. And that's when he invited me to take refuge in him in his counsel, in his counsel, which told me to trust in Jesus because he's done it all. And so David's cry in verse two became my own cry. And so 
he says, Preserve me, O God. That was my cry. So God, please save me. For in you and in the gospel, I take refuge. And for the first time, and for the first time in, I'm sorry, for the first time in 22 years, I cried out to God. Not some distant textbook knowledge of who he is, not a character study, but me, personally me, truly me. I say to Yahweh, he is my Lord, my Adonai. I have no good apart from you. Meaning that that God is my ultimate good. That he is the good that's over everything. He is the good that's in everything. Everything in life is good because of God. God, nothing is good unless you're in it. I've walked away from you and nothing was good. It was just mess. It was madness. But with you in it, it's good. Because you are good. You are the ultimate good. Because I have no good apart from you. And this, this is the personal commitment. This is the declaration of trust that a believer has. Not some distant textbook knowledge, but, but heartfelt, deep-rooted, you are my Lord. Yahweh, you are my Adonai, my master. I have no good apart from you. And what I used to think about this passage was, man, David, he's such, a, he's such an amazing Christian that he can come up and say, like, in, in, in the scriptures and say, like, God, you are my God. Yahweh, you're my Lord, and I have no good apart from you. Meaning, like, my life is all set on you, God. That, that, man, my life is so perfect in the way that I'm obeying you that I know that, that nothing in me is good apart from you. I thought that's what he was saying. Like, he's... He's so arrived at his Christian life that he's able to declare that. And I actually thought, man, I want to aim myself there. I want to live a life like that. Eventually, where I'm following Jesus, where I can come up and say and stand in front of everyone and say, I have no good apart from God. I wish. I wished that. But now, I realize what he is saying. I realize what he is saying there is that God is just that good. He is so good that he looks at everything else and he's like, God, apart from you, I have nothing that is good. And he was king. Maybe when he was writing this, he wasn't king yet, but he, he's like, he looks at everything around him and he's like, I have no good apart from you. And he's able to say that because God is just that good. God is so good that nothing else even compares to him. Everything that is good in his life is because God is in it. He made it and he gave it to me to enjoy. So then for me, a new lens started to form. Where I started to look at the bad and the good and started investigating, well, how is God in this? Like I decided to, I started to wonder about that. So the suffering, the bad and the difficult situations, and many of you are going through that right now. And so am I and my family. But in the bad and difficult situations, it makes me ask different questions because 
my first reaction is verse 1, right? Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. So how, what counsel does God give me to take refuge in him? What is the truth that I can hold on to and cling on to? Is it that he's going to perfect me through this suffering? Is it that he's going to give me endurance and character? What is it? What is the truth, God, that you're going to help me take refuge in you with? How can I stand in my place and declare to the world and declare to the enemy and declare to my own sinful desires and say, Yahweh, you are my Lord, you are my master. Sin is not my master. My desires and my flesh is not my master. What other people say or think about me, not my master. Yahweh, you are my Adonai. How can I say that in this situation? How can I stand firm and not bend in my allegiance toward God if in Yahweh I have everything that is good? Where is God? Where is God? Where is good in this circumstance, in my difficulty, in my suffering? Where is there evidence of Him? I started to ask those questions. And honestly, depending on the situation or the circumstance, maybe God is the only thing that is good in your life in that particular situation. Like there is no good. There's no good when someone is dying and, and there's no, seemingly no solution. And in the hospital bed and you're watching them waste away. Maybe there is no good there other than God who is all good, who is there with you, strengthening you through it. Maybe the fact that he gave you eternity so that when, when this life is gone, that you'll be with him in paradise, in perfection, where there's no tears. Maybe that's good. And maybe you've forgotten. In this broken and sinful world, man, asking for his goodness to give you strength, maybe, maybe that's all we've got. That's all we can bank on. But the same lens starts to get applied to the good stuff too. This thing that, that makes me happy in my life, a relationship or, or a new job or a new hobby or a, a delicious food. Like, what, what is this? Like, where is God in this? Do I recognize him? Do I experience him? Do I think about him in this? I started to ask that. Where is God in this? I started to ask. Is my master pleased with what I'm enjoying? Is he in it? Because apart from him, I know there is no good. So is he in it? Because if he is not in it, I know all too well what these false goods lead me into. And so I started to think, where is God in this, in this happiness, in this good? And if I can find him, praise him. And if I can't, I run. And if I don't, I hope I have godly men and godly women around me to point me the other way. Because I don't want to run away from him and go back into the desert. When David wrote this psalm, he was clearly afraid of something. So he opens up with, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. And then he turns, because later in this text you see the enemies are coming after him, and it's death itself that he's afraid of. But in his fear, what he does is he reaches out to God and he says, Preserve me, O God, I hide in you. And then, he redeclares his allegiance to God. He says, Yahweh, you are my Lord, and I have no good apart from you. He reminds himself of the goodness that he has in God. He reminds himself that he has God, the ultimate good. 
And this is David's prayer. And I am certain it can be our prayer too. To be able to discover, maybe for the first time, that this radical connection to say that, God, you are, Yahweh, you are revealing yourself to me and I can hold on to you and say, you know, there are areas in my life where I've never called you master. I don't let you weigh in on this, but now I'm going to because apart from you, there's no good. You can choose to believe this text is true and start to live your life by that, by that promise. Or maybe you're rediscovering again that we have no good apart from God. Again and again, we come back to this and turn and look at Jesus, to get Yahweh and say, be able to say in every circumstance, whether good or bad, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to Yahweh, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Amen? Let's pray. I want to ask you for a moment just to close your eyes and just think about the things that you consider good in your life, a blessing, a joy, something that gives you happiness, and ask yourself the question, where is God in it? Do you see him? Is he pleased with how white hot your heart is and in love with this this thing or, or this, maybe this person? What is it? And if you're going through a struggle and a, and a deep and dark sorrow, yeah, ask, is there good in that? Is there something you're not seeing? Is there Yahweh in the midst of that strengthening you? Have you asked him for strength? Let's pray together. Father, just want to want to thank you for inviting each of us, for loving us so much that you sent your only son, that he, with full knowledge of the consequences and the full knowledge of what it's going to be like, went to the cross and paid for our sins, paid for our transgressions, our brokenness, our rebellion, and still chose to answer the prayer, preserve me, O God, when we cried out to you. Reveal to each and every one of us, God, that there is good. There is good in the midst of any situation, for you are good. You are the ultimate good, and you've given us so much to to praise you over and a strength that we can access through your counsel. Christians can be people of immense courage through unbeatable odds to have joy in the midst of it, God. Would Savior Community Church be a church filled with people who declare to Yahweh that you are my Lord? that you are our Lord, our Adonai, our Master, so that everything we do can bring you glory and praise. And we can say that 
Christ, you're enough. You're all we need. Yeah, would that be true of us more and more as we walk with you, Jesus? Yeah, in your name we pray. Amen.